0: Newspaper clipping, October 25th, 1845. Captain Elliot, the late British minister to Texas, who has been visiting our city for some time, had rather less than fair play from the press of the United States and England. We cannot comprehend the short-sighted bigotry which prompted some of our own citizens to oppose annexation. But national policy made it both natural and proper that England should wish to defeat it. Texas, an independent ally, or Texas, one of the United States, would at no distant day make a vast difference in England's position as a great manufacturing power. She was right as a nation in sending Captain Elliot to diplomatize against it, and she could not have chosen a better man to get at mystifications and embroilments, witness his success with opium in China. But she blundered dreadfully for her own interests in not acting upon his advice. And her press is now fretting at the inefficiency and bad faith of General Houston and Dr. Jones. This is unjust. They were loyally Englished, but they could do nothing but gossip without about annexation because England herself would do nothing but gossip. The milliner queen cannot boast of three more willing servants than Elliot, Houston and Jones. Her stupid ministers, however, would not strengthen their hands in season. If, as the three gentlemen desired, the British ministry had found the wit three years ago to insist upon Mexico recognizing the independence of Texas. England lending the embarrassed Republic a million sterling to meet pressing wants, she could have staved off annexation and perhaps divided the nation, which is, of course, her darling plan now for killing off Republicanism. And Houston would have taken any new Confederacy under his special protection. Eliot foresaw this and joined Houston in urging England to manage. But the ministry were taking care of Prince Albert's horses and children and had no money to spare for peasant education at home or the protection of their cotton workers' interests abroad. Even such a trifle as obtaining the liberty of the Texian prisoners in Mexico, so easy of attainment by the British ministers, was neglected because it pleased General Houston just then to say they deserved their fate, and the United States had an opportunity of proving their greater love for Texians by laboring incessantly for their release until it was accomplished. England expected everything for nothing, that being the condition upon which she trades with weak states, but she let the golden opportunity of winning Texas pass unimproved, and ought not to impute too much blame to three agents who could not prevent the destinies of texas being decided by the well-weighed decision of united republican citizens instead of a pliant and king-loving executive and that is from the papers of mirabeau buonaparte lamar my favorite president of the republic of texas volume six i'm joshua trevino and this is the hard country
1: country podcast recording in front of a live audience for the very first time. Uh, My name is Melissa Ford. I'm a policy director at the Texas Public Policy Foundation, and I am joined by Joshua Trevino, the Foundation's chief of intelligence and research. So, Josh, thank you so much for reading that passage. I really do want you to unpack it. But first of all, I wanted to start with an announcement, and that is that I think a little bit less than an hour ago, our governor, the governor of Texas, Greg Abbott, announced another special session. So I just wanted to bring that up to everyone that border security is on the call. So fourth special session, here we come.
0: Yes.
1: (laughs) I don't know if you want to comment on that, but I just wanted to let everybody know that. And then I want you to jump in on why you chose that passage and break it down for all of us.
0: I'll talk about the special session briefly, uh, given the information that we have. You know, Abraham Lincoln said that the Lord must love uh, common-looking people because he made so many of them. Uh, I think Texas uh, governance must love special sessions because we've had four uh, in in about as many months. Uh, this this new special session, the fourth called uh, of the 88th, is I've got the proclamation here in front of me. I won't read the entire thing, but there's a couple that are that, that are relevant to the hard country and the topics that we cover, which is really Mexico and the Texas-Mexico relationship and history and border. Uh, The governor has called for I read here from the proclamation legislation to do more to reduce illegal immigration by creating criminal offenses for illegal entry into the state from a foreign nation and illegal reentry or presence, exclusion, deportation or removal, authorizing the removal of illegal immigrants from Texas, so on and so on. Uh, And then there's there's a second clause in the call uh, legislation to impede illegal entry into Texas by providing more funding for the maintenance and operation of border barrier infrastructure, additional DPS funding and so on. And so, and so th- th- this is, of course, um, uh, kind of a, a follow on and concurrent with yeah. uh, the items from the previous calls. Uh, uh, when this episode airs, which will presumably be within 24 to 36 hours of, of, of actual recording, there may be some more information to share. But bottom line is that you know we at the Foundation are supportive of this. Uh, we're very supportive of some of the bolder measures that um, Texas is contemplating now. Um, I, I say now that Texas has been con- contemplating, especially in the vein of asserting state powers that uh, that we've we ourselves have done research on uh, that really speak to the state's ability to defend itself as a polity under the constitutions about the United States and Texas. So uh, you know when when they get it done, I won't say if, but when they get it done, uh, you know passing the legislation that uh, you know you know creates creates effective border barriers, um, uh, empowers uh, the state of Texas to create misdemeanors escalating to felonies for illegal entry. And actually gives the state of Texas the ability to command uh, the removal from Texas of those who entered legally. Um, that will be a politically new thing for the state of Texas and, uh, and frankly, for the country as well. And it'll be, and it'll be all for the good. So, so, so we're very hopeful that it happens. I'll add one thing, Melissa, if I could. Uh, Although our primary purpose you know, in in our work and obviously the work of the legislature is to defend Texas, to to advance the interests of Texas, and that is the sole necessary justification for what we do, we should note that this is also good for the country on the south side of the border too. Uh, And it's good for the migrants who are caught in the human trafficking networks that treat them so cruelly, bringing them all the way to the border um, with all kind of the iniquities and crimes that are perpetrated on them. You and I have discussed on the show at length. Uh, and so you can, you can regard this as not just a, a mandate for protective acts for Texas, but candidly acts of humanity uh, toward the ones who suffer most, who are the, the traffic migrants themselves.
1: Yeah, well, I always say that, but it's more humane than the alternative. Having border security is. 100%. So fingers crossed, I just testified on that. Um, creating the criminal offense for illegal entry. I testified on it last week. And as I was testifying, then they mentioned that it was the seventh time they were hearing it. So, the
0: seventh time they <laughs> were hearing it, but, but, but there was one interesting thing about your testimony too, which, uh, which is that you were the only person- In favor. In favor yep. present to testify. Who else was there? Tell us.
1: There was 19 people there and they were all talking about how it was uh, racist and how it was unconstitutional and how it was anti-immigrant, which we've talked about it a lot of times, but we know that's not true. But fingers crossed, more to come on this special session. I know we have a lot to cover today, but I just wanted to make that announcement. And I wanna give you the opportunity to talk about why you chose the passage that you started with.
0: Oh, yes, absolutely. Well, uh, partly because it's, it's simply entertaining, uh, yeah. candidly. This, the, the, this the, the newspaper passage that I read uh, kind of denouncing the English for failing to uh, prevent the annexation of Texas, uh was not written by mirabeau lamar uh you know know, for those of you who don't know you know there's only there was only three presidents of the republic of texas there's sam houston mirabeau lamar and then anson jones who gave the store away by allowing texas to be annexed by the united states um in, in his defense the overwhelming number of texans voted for it uh, but Lamar is such an interesting figure to me, uh, uh, partly because he, he's sort of this this middle, I think we've talked about him before, haven't we? He's, he's sort of this mid-19th century Southern romantic, a native of Georgia mm-hmm. who ends up in Texas, ends up as president of the Republic of Texas. And he and Sam Houston had, had competing strategic visions for Texas. Uh, Houston was, I would say, a realist, uh, and, and he was, which is one reason Houston was terrifically in favor of uh, the annexation of Texas to the United States, and also, just over 15 years later, uh, strenuously opposed Texas' secession from the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so probably you can, you can empirically defend Houston's grand strategy for Texas more, but Lamar was, was the romantic. Lamar is the one who envisioned a, a true Texas empire that uh, in Canada probably stretched to the Rockies, if not to the Pacific, and definitely encompassed New Mexico, which he tried to invade, uh, and probably a good chunk of northern Mexico, modern day northern Mexico uh, itself, uh, which, he, which he also tried to invade. Failed in both his invasions. Um, but Lamar, L- Lamar, interestingly enough, ends up uh, you know, post-war as, I think, he's, I think he's American minister to Guatemala. He participates in the US-Mexican War, uh, where with a lot of the other Texans uh, he, uh, he's, I believe he's in the battle for, for Monterey, and uh, ends up, um, uh, he publishes this terrible book of poetry. It's, it's, it's available online, I've read more of it than I should admit. But in this book of poetry, he actually has this, this, uh, this really execrable, and at the same time, very funny poem about this, this Mexican woman uh, who he meets uh, in, in Monterey and falls in love with. And there's, there's no historical evidence that she even knew who he was. Uh, And so but but he writes a poem about her and I guess that's kind of what passes in the 1840s for uh, for 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 true romance interesting guy He 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 has this clipping uh, and 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 I think it's in his papers uh, And I'm I'm, I'm surmising here, but I think it's a it's a defensible um, uh, Assumption because because in it it mentions that England is on a global mission to extinguish Republican governance from the world uh, and 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 they do it by any subterfuge necessary. This is what you know. There, there's a reference to the English uh, opium traffic in China, uh, and then and then sort of there, their, you know, sort of the imputation that they deal uh, in in iniquities versus smaller, they say weaker nations, and uh, and and that, that that to me is interesting. It's very eye catching, you know, and uh, it, it's a it's a window into how the original Texans thought of themselves. You know, the the revolutionary generation in 1835 1836. And then moving onward here to this 1845 clipping, uh, they really did believe themselves, uh, even you know talking, talking about essentially 70 years after the after the American Revolution, 10 years after the Texas Revolution, as effectively being on the edge of the world, establishing Republican governance in a wilderness, smaller Republican governance in a wilderness for the first time uh, at any scale since the Roman Republic itself. Uh, and I think I think we as Americans and as Texans tend to forget that, 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 this was, that this was something that was not new necessarily, because it had yeah. been tried in human history before, but it had never been done at any reasonable scale. All the examples of, of republics basically between Julius Caesar and George Washington are these very small and compact polities. It's Swiss cantons, it's Italian city-states. This is what republican governance is, and they don't tend to last very long. Uh, and and so and so there's this understanding that every other form of government monarchical government in particular autocratic government Wants to extinguish it. It's it's the natural impetus England, which is which is led by uh, a king or, or in this case uh, They call it the milliner queen, which is uh, sort of an in, uh, insult to uh, Victoria at this point uh, is 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 obviously wanting to extinguish a Republican state and that's one reason that they can't bring themselves to um uh, to uh, to to ally with Texas because they can't cooperate in the setting up of a republic, and and what's interesting is that is that this isn't just paranoia on the Texans' part; uh, it actually is is true. And this is something that that in 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 British you know expand the aperture a little bit from from the English in British politics. You know you get in well into the 20th century, and there's still arguments against. I mean, this is kind of the the motive force of a lot of Irish history for the past century. This this this, this impetus against the sentiment against republicanism uh, writ large. Uh, and so it's a it's a fight that's basically been won
2: mm-hmm.
0: in the modern era. We don't think about it. You know, we, we, we assume it's a common place that peoples ought to rule themselves and that sovereignty resides in the nation. And, you know, you know that's, that's applied unequally uh, throughout time and place now. Um, but these Texans had a consciousness of it. And I really uh, enjoyed, in addition to the comedic elements of this, I enjoyed that acknowledgement here in the papers of Mirabeau Lamar uh, that they're trying something bold and new and fragile, uh, but they dared to do it.
1: That's amazing. I I find that incredible. Thank you for elaborating. But you didn't really know what I was going to start off the episode with. But it's very relevant to what's happening today. Because we often talk about how history happens in cycles. Um, But I wanted to start off the episode asking you about how two Tuesdays two Tuesdays ago, um, the attorney general in Texas, uh, Ken Paxton, announced that they are suing the Biden administration and they're suing them because earlier this summer, five border patrol agents were seen on camera um, cutting some of the razor wire that's located at the US-Mexico border. So they're cutting it, it's on private property in in Eagle Pass, and they're cutting it and then they're helping migrants across. They're like spreading it open, helping migrants across they're helping them up an embankment and then in the video you can see them lining up to be processed Yeah. and so the biden administration is suing for that which i think is perfect like perfectly reasonable because texas put those in place to secure the border and manage the the fact that the communities are being inundated by crime and drugs and a humanitarian crisis and violence and so many other things and so it just It's interesting because the federal government has neglected to secure that border. And Mm -hmm. now they're not just not protecting it, but they're taking deliberate steps to make it more vulnerable and to not allow Texas to protect that border. And so I just wanted to ask you about that, how they're allowing Texas to basically be flooded by illegal immigration and everything that comes with it. And I wanted to ask you, Do you think that the Biden administration just doesn't see like the risks coming with it? Because some of the new numbers are just shocking. Um, We're breaking records. We've talked about this often because we seem to be breaking records every week, (laughs) but breaking records left and right and not good ones. Um, But recently, the US Border Patrol reported a new record high for encounters between ports of entry along the southwest border. And in September, we had 218,763. And the total encounters for this fiscal year, which just ended 2023, surpassed 2 million, making this the worst year on record under this administration.
0: And just encounters.
1: Just encounters, and that this is between point- ports of entry. This is not at ports of entry. Oh, yeah. and so we've talked on this podcast about DC's war on Texas, but we keep seeing the federal government stand in the way of Texas. So I wanted you to talk a little bit about why we're having to fight so hard to protect ourselves.
0: Well, I think there were at least three or four questions in there. I'll try to I'll try to address them in turn. Uh, you know, who, who had it on their bingo card that that Eagle Pass and Piedras Negras were going to be the cockpit for the uh, for determining the destiny of not just Texas, but the United States? It's uh, it, it's a lot more for those for those who don't know, you know, Piedras Negras What's it famous for? You and I have talked about this. Do you remember? It, yeah. has, a, it has a culinary distinction. It's, it's the place. Where oh,
1: I'm, the nacho. The nacho yeah, is invented. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yes, of course. I, I have to bring that up every time yeah. because someday when the border crisis is secured, I want to go to the nacho festival in Piedras Negras and enjoy we'll it with my filter. family. Yeah, it was actually a guy named Nacho, uh, Ignacio, and there were there were two um, uh, they were uh, wives of U.S. Air Force uh, servicemen, is the story, and uh, he didn't have anything to cook for them, so he puts uh, cheese on on uh, i was going to say nachos but they weren't nachos he puts cheese on corn chips and yeah. serves them up and and uh by, by, by such things it's it, great our history made i don't feel like we should end the podcast right there on this incredible <laughs> up note but since the invention of the nacho things have gone south uh, uh and now of course uh you know Pedros negras and and eagle pass have this have this horrific uh trafficking problem as is the entire border two million encounters 2 million, Two million encounters. This it, fiscal year. And the rule of thumb is that you is that, the, is that of the encounters, the encounters represent, this is a very rough rule of thumb, we've said this before, it's worth repeating every time, that's only about 20% of the actual number of people who are crossing. Maybe so less. Imagine that. 10 million. Possibly. Who knows? Who knows? But 10 million individuals, you know, possibly crossing more likely, I would say, if I had to ballpark five to seven, which is not much of a comfort, actually, when you think about just how tremendous these figures are. But this is like adding an entire extra state of Nebraska or, you know, a Delaware or something like that, or, you know, maybe a Connecticut, uh, you know, every every 12 months. And it's simply unsustainable in the long run. Look, you know, what we see what we see with with uh, there there have been two lawsuits uh, around Eagle Pass. One has been the buoy barrier lawsuit. And and I I believe we spoke about that on the last podcast. The state of Texas puts puts the puts the buoy buoy barriers in the river. They're tremendously effective. Uh, And and then and then the federal government sues uh, to to get them removed. That's still that's still ongoing. That litigation uh, continues. Uh, And now there is uh, counter lawsuits, probably probably the wrong word, but it basically is from a from from a tactical perspective, because the state of Texas, along with our foundation, actually, uh, I want to give credit to 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 our our litigator colleagues uh, who saw this opportunity and took it um uh, are suing the federal government because the federal government uh and its personnel as, as you say have actually been been removing uh or and and, and or cutting depending on the circumstances There's been more than one incident uh the razor wire that has been on the riverbank uh the, to, to to impede the illegal migrant flows which is which is astonishing astonishing to see so you see the federal government doing two things one is preventing the state of texas positively preventing it from from protecting itself but then you see the agents of the federal government uh, act, actually physically acting positively acting to remove protection measures that the state of texas has erected for itself mm-hmm. on private property with the voluntary compliance and acquiescence uh, and, and sometimes you know positive desire of the landowners themselves and it's and it's simply astonishing you know you know you know we talked about uh, England in the 1840s wanting to stamp out self-rule uh around the world this is exactly what the federal government under the Biden regime uh is doing to Texas right now the reason uh, you know and, and we've gone into this in depth but it never it never is is an inopportune time to say it the reason that Washington DC and the Biden regime in particular is doing this to Texas, destroying border infrastructure, preventing Texas from erecting new border infrastructure, has nothing whatsoever to do with any kind of humanitarian concern. We have to understand that, zero, none. They do not care, they do not care. there's two national governments that don't care what happens to the migrants. One's in Washington, D.C., and the other's in Mexico City. And those two national governments work together. Uh, they are doing this to Texas because they are concerned that Texas is exercising its own sovereignty under the Constitution. And if you look at what happens when states realize that they can do these things, when states at large understand that they have plenary powers over people within their jurisdictions, when states understand that they can reclaim what's due uh, to them under the Tenth Amendment, when they understand that states are basically sovereign, with the exception of certain powers that are delegated to the federal government, then the whole progressive project starts to collapse. I don't think it's, it's an overstatement to say that. And, and, and there is a robust understanding in Washington, D.C. that that's the case. So to your question, you know, does the Biden administration see what's happening? Do they understand what's happening? It is a mistake, in my view, to to, to say that they don't. They do. They know what's happening. But what we must understand is that they don't see anything wrong with it. There is an entire class, an ideological class of individuals, uh, and they are controlling the, the commanding heights in academia, in media, and in federal government in particular, who genuinely believe that there is no legitimate grounds on which you can oppose migration. None, none. There's no legitimate grounds Mm -hmm. on which you can assert that a polity, a political community can define itself. There's none. And the radicalism of it can't be overstated. You know, a lot of us, you know, and, and you and I have talked about this, a lot of us have been transfixed by these horrific events in the Middle East, right, since October 7th. Hamas comes and they conduct A pogrom, a massacre. Let's call it what it is: uh, an act of savagery that will redound in infamy, you know, through history, uh, against against innocent children, women, you know, you know, know, people at home, and uh, and and what do we see in the United States itself? Set aside Europe, set aside the Middle East. We see people taking to the streets in support of it, in support of the people who did it, in support of the societies that incubated it. And these are the same people from the same sources who now think that it is fine. That 10 million unknowns are flooding into the united states and they claim it's on it's on grounds of humanity or opposition to racial bigotry it has nothing yeah. to do with it it is an antagonism toward smaller republican self-rule that uh, that is everything that our ancestors the founders of texas and the united states stood for
1: That sounds like, I was going to say, that sounds like a lot of the people that I was testifying with last week. That's what they think. Oh, no doubt. But you mentioned gotaways, and I just wanted to give you uh, one statistic on that. Please. The fiscal year ended, uh, or it began on October 1st. And since the fiscal year began, we've had 23,000 gotaways at the southern border. And that's about, uh, from the moment that I got this statistic, about 1,000 a day. And that's known gotaways. Okay. So just for, for since people... Since October 1st? Since October 1st. Thank you. And that's known gotaways. So this this is the kind of number that I think should keep a lot of people up at night. Because this is people that we are aware that are coming in. Mm-hmm. Um, but we don't we don't know where they're coming from. We don't know who they are. And we don't know what their intentions are. But we know they're probably not good. And this is just people that we know of. Mm -hmm. This does not include the people that come in under the radar or undetected. So I just wanted to share that number because I thought it was completely shocking. And you started talking about Hamas a little bit. So I want to share a couple more numbers with you. But I wanted to tell you that just last month. So well, actually, I guess this was two months ago. They haven't counted the October numbers yet. But just in the month of September, um, 18 people on the FBI's terror watch list were apprehended at our border and that brings us to 169 this fiscal year and that's a 72 percent increase from last year
0: and again this fiscal year just means the past this three fiscal year that's the yeah. mo-
1: that's the most on record yeah. um it's more than last fiscal year not just last fiscal fiscal year which was a record-setting total but the last six fiscal years combined so wow. we're seeing a lot of terrorist apprehensions at our border and that should absolutely terrify us. Because another thing that I wanted to tell you, since we're on the topic of terrorists, which we'll stay on that topic, even though there's a lot of other scary things to be scared of at the border. I mean, we're seeing gang members, people with warrants, um, people with um, convictions, all sorts of stuff. But since we're on the topic of terrorism, because I know that that's been on a lot of people's minds with what's happening in Israel, um, I wanted to share once, I, I think I printed it out for you actually, but recently a memo was obtained by fox news where cbp is warning all of their staff mm-hmm. of their, the risk that foreign terrorist fighters engaged in the israel hamas war may be attempting to enter the united states via our very weak southern border so the memo specifically is mentioning hamas and the threat that they might be coming in through our very weak border sure So in response, there's a group of House Republicans that are pushing the Biden administration to do something, and they're pushing them for more information about this national security threat that we have right now of these foreign terrorist organizations at our southern border. Um, There's 19 lawmakers, they're led by Rep. Lance Gooden, from right here, from Texas, that are asking uh, DHS Secretary Mayorkas and Secretary of State Blinken for an update on what's being done to address these escalating threats in national security. And so I know you kind of touched on this, but I just, it's beyond me that the Biden administration does not recognize this terror threat, because I think that what happened in Israel should be a warning that of what can happen here yeah. in the US. Yeah. If we don't remain vigilant and if our federal government does not do anything about the threats that we're seeing coming in through the border.
0: I want. To, I want. To, it's uh, no, no. I think. I. I think those are excellent points. Um, uh, you know, I'll. I'll briefly address the Biden administration because I think I've said all that can be said about them. Uh, the, you know, that this is a, expecting expecting alertness to and proactive action against this kind of threat is expecting something that's never going to happen. I mean, I mean, we're we're talking about a uh, an administration that has responded to the moment of the most overt anti-Semitism in the West since the 1930s with the establishment of a commission on islamophobia right and so and so they, they, they simply don't care and they're not going to they're not going to care now uh, and that's just the unfortunate reality we need to uh, there are parallels between the between the the Gaza Israel border what happened there and the US Mexico border um, but uh, I want to bound that by saying from the outset that there's a fundamental difference, which is that which is that uh, there's no population of Mexicans on the south side of the U.S.-Mexican border that are you know wanting to wipe us out. It's uh, it's 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 not the same. There's not a fundamentally hostile society on the other side of the Mexico border. There's criminality and there's a corrupt government and you know everything that we that we talk about at length. But uh, but I just want to be really clear that it's not the same qualitatively kind of threat. Yeah, of course, but. Where there is a parallel from the operational standpoint is that the the Israelis uh, got operationally lazy in ways that should be very familiar to us. There's no critique that we can level of them that don't apply to us now, and it's inexcusable uh, that we continue to be lazy in the same ways. When you look at at kind of the kind of the context and contours of the of the border controls in Gaza that they implemented prior to the morning of October seventh, two thousand twenty-three, you saw uh, undermanning, an over-reliance on technology and a political belief that it simply couldn't happen to them, that there was no reason to do it. And all three of those apply to the U S Mexico border right now. It is undermanned. We over-rely on technology and, you know, technology's got its place, but we over-rely on technology. It's nothing that beats a wall, nothing beats a wall and boots on the ground. And there's a political belief that nothing can happen to us. And that belief will persist and those delusions will persist until the inevitable occurs. You know, you can think of if there is X percent, however minuscule of something happening, just by the laws of compounding returns, eventually you're gonna hit 100% and the feared outcome is going to happen. Well, that, that, that's coming. We don't know when and we don't know what but to your point you know if we're intercepting let's say we've got x millions of of illegals crossing the border two million of which are encountered in a year and then and then an unknown number of of many more millions probably exponentially more millions who are not encountered and so and so you know use that same uh, you know order of magnitude on, on your known individual on the terror watch list, by the way, which is not the full population of actual you know, would-be terrorists, because it's just the people who are on the watch list. So there's going to be uh, a larger pool of individuals who might have terrorist intentions in mind. You're still talking about, what, a few dozen, a few hundred individuals, which set against that context uh, seems like a drop in the bucket. But how many does it take? How many does it take to do something truly catastrophic? And for those of us, 9-11 was 22 years ago. It's a while back. Mm -hmm. Uh, But uh, that was not a large scale operation in terms of manpower, it just wasn't. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so so the need for uh, what I would describe as a granular vigilance is still present. And what happened in Israel on October 7th uh, ought to be a wake up call for us. And if we're not listening to it in the belief that it simply couldn't happen here or that the threat isn't here, uh, we're kidding ourselves. There's robust Hezbollah operations in the Western Hemisphere. There's robust Iranian operations in the Western Hemisphere. There's robust Islamist operations in the Western Hemisphere. Heck, there's Islamist operations right here in the United States. Many of them out in the open. And so when we when we look at at the nature of the threat, we have to be candid about that. Uh, this will have happened uh, in the past by the time this episode airs, but. Tomorrow on November 8th, we're actually having our U.S.-Mexico policy summit mm-hmm. here at the foundation, you know, right here on the stage. And Joseph Humeyer, who's the world's foremost expert, in my opinion, on, on Iran and Hezbollah in the Western Hemisphere, is going to educate a lot of us uh, on this topic so for those of you watching the podcast who aren't gonna you know you know go go find the live stream because we'll we're gonna be record to everything yeah. we're gonna record everything and post it on youtube but look up the panel on what's happening in the americas and joseph Meyer uh, in particular is going to be there. not just him there's a lot of good folks uh, who are going to be there um, but but have a listen check out that work and just know that that everything you see there can and will come here
1: yeah. Well, thanks, Josh. I think you've scared all of us sufficiently. For, I should have um,
0: saved the nachos for last, right? Like that yeah. So I
1: actually want to shift to uh, sketchy governments as on the southern side of the border. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, because so, it wouldn't be a hard country episode if we didn't. But I wanted to ask you, for two days after this all went down, the Mexican government actually stayed silent on their diplomatic position um, regarding the armed conflict be- be- between Israel and Hamas in Gaza. Yeah. And I know that surprised you, but as we know, since he took office, Lopez Obrador has um, repeatedly said that the best foreign policy is a good okay. domestic policy, and he's always advocated for peace. And so when he was asked about it, he refused to take sides. And he said that he just wants a peaceful solution and that he didn't want he wanted to avoid further escalation of violence and confrontation. So he just didn't pick a side as far as it goes on the conflict um, and then As you can imagine, the embassy of Israel did not receive that very well, and they asked him to denounce some of the barbaric actions that are being taken by Hamas. Um, And he didn't say anything, but eventually the Secretary of Foreign Affairs came out and said that they denounce violence. Uh, But that's it. So I wanted to ask you what you think about this stance and if there's anything you want to say about it.
0: Jeez. Yeah, you, you know, it's, it, it's such a betrayal of, of uh, even modern Mexican history. Me- Mexico, you know, for, we, 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 criticize, we criticize Mexico and the Mexican state a lot uh, on this podcast. Uh, but I want to I lead by, by complimenting uh, uh, Mexico and, 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 and Mexican history. Mexico in the 20th century was a tremendous refuge for individuals escaping barbarous persecution. Uh, particularly in Europe. And and so the, the, there is a reason you have a significant population of Ashkenazi Jews in Mexico City. I think yeah. Claudia Scheinbaum's uh, grandparents, right, yeah, okay. were, were, were part of that refugee population that came uh, from Europe in the 1930s. Uh, Mexico was a refuge for, uh, for Spanish Republicans um uh for all sorts of, of refugees from the nazis i mean i mean again for everything that you can say about mid-century pre-governance one of the things that they did right was that was that if there was a if there was a fascist or genocidal regime trying to kill you yeah, mexico would take you in uh, and so that, that that's a that's a superb record of humanity uh, the to, to mexico's historical credit what Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador has done in, in, basically, you know, finding it too difficult to take sides between uh, Israel and Hamas, between between the killers and the victims, uh, is is a betrayal
2: mm-hmm.
0: of of his own country's record and his own country's moral standing uh, that, it, that that I think accrued greatly to its credit uh, in uh, in the past century. It's not it's not hard to decide. I mean, it's apparently hard for a lot of the world, but you know, the world's upside down. Uh, but it's it's really not hard to decide. It's it's not hard even if you politically sympathize with the aspirations of Palestinian nationalism. Let's stipulate for the sake of argument that that's something that is a legitimate state aim. Uh, it's still very easy, or it ought to be, from a moral level, to condemn Hamas. It should. Uh, you know what we're finding is that for many it's not, and you can add Amlo to that list. The reason that amlo can't do it and the reason that his own government had this mealy-mouthed condemnation of violence uh you know when they were finally pressed into into taking a position is is simply this the the reality is that is that amlo is the moreno regime this is not going to change under claudia by the way uh it might get
1: worse
0: uh, it, it might, it might, yeah i'll probably make it worse but but that regime is instinctually and ideologically allied to the forces arrayed against israel and the united states and the western world in general they see themselves as decolonizers. They see themselves, you know, when they look at uh, a man in a black and white checked keffiyeh who's driving out, you know, what they call, you know, put in quotes, like a settler population, um, uh, that's something that ideologically they are primed to empathize with and see themselves in because they imagine that this is not actually empirically supportable, they imagine that their ancestors did that to the Spanish uh, 200 years ago. Uh, and, and it's it's simply it's simply not the case. I mean, Mexico is, is, is uh, a nation uh mestiza thank you thank you it's, it's 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 the mestiza nation right and and and, and so and so th- th- this is actually their sympathies um and uh, what you're seeing and what ought to take root for american policymakers is they ought to look south and realize that we have a neighbor to the South <laughs> with the people, again, this is not a condemnation of the Mexican nation, you know, the, the whole populace of Mexico, you know, who really, you know, don't, uh, you and I talked about this in the context of the Scheinbaum uh, candidacy uh, yeah. two, two episodes ago, I think. We talked about the, you know, you know, anti-Semitism of the type that we see on like a given American college campus now, uh, doesn't really have deep roots in Mexican society. It just doesn't. It has, it has roots on like Vicente Fox's Twitter feed, but, mm-hmm. but, 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 but outside of that, uh, you know, you know Mexico is actually a pretty good place uh, to be Jewish. Um, uh, but 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 the Mexican state again under AMLO uh, is is unfortunately it's a friend to all these regimes uh, who are who are deeply hostile to the principles of humanity that the yeah. United States stand for and it is it remains Russia, astonishing Iran. Russia Iran China uh, you know you know you, you name it um, Cuba Venezuela Nicaragua uh, uh, it's 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 astonishing that even from a standpoint of pure self interest. The United States cannot bring itself even to say something to the Mexican state about this.
1: Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because it's not true. When he says that he will always maintain neutrality when it comes to other countries' internal affairs, it's simply not true. Absolutely. It's not. quite the opposite.
0: And where was and, and, and where was he? Uh when, when, when the Russian embassy in Mexico City oh, yeah, was right. was tweeting out a map. Of the united states with mexico having reclaimed everything south of uh, the columbia river in oregon um, uh, i didn't hear any any retweeted uh, any me. yeah they probably retweeted <laughs> i didn't hear any uh, they probably like printed it out and put it on their walls but uh but uh, you know that it's, it's it's you're right it's simply false uh they, they take sides all the time um are bolivian you know you know it was a mexican air force plane that came in and rescued the autocrat uh, evo morales yep. Uh, I'll never get over it. uh, Well, well, nor should you. Saved him from justice, and now he lives in comfort in Mexico City. And it was because the Mexicans feel free to intervene in foreign affairs when it suits them to do so.
1: Well... This always happens to us but we always run out of time to talk about all the things that we want to talk about but we still have some time left Um, and i wanted to ask you briefly about something that you and i and our heritage friends worked on recently in the past two weeks and that was a statement that we worked on condemning um, the biden administration's decision to ease economic sanctions on the regime of venezuelan dictator nicolas maduro in exchange for having him promise that he would hold fair and free elections. So there's a lot to unpack here and there's yeah. we could probably hold an entire episode talking about this, but I just wanted to get your initial thoughts.
0: Well, I mean, it's 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 another example of Biden regime wish casting in the hemisphere, right? I mean, there's no way there's going to be free and fair elections in Venezuela. And having secured the relaxation of American sanctions, uh, there's uh, there's no further leverage to bring against yeah. them. It might
1: even embolden and empower them.
0: It'll embolden them, empower them, and, and look. Venezuela's already the, the, the Venezuelan regime already has a program in place uh, to to, uh, to to counter American sanctions. It gets it gets uh, you know raw materials and sells commodities to the Chinese, to the Cubans, uh, to a certain extent to the Russians. Um, they get they get money and technical assistance from the Iranians to a certain extent. Uh, they have partnerships with with, with Lula and Brazil, with with, oh, yeah. uh, with with Amlo in Mexico. Uh, but the other thing is that uh, they have realized that it's simply easier for them to push out millions of their own population. Have you ever looked at the, uh, the Venezuelan population collapse? I was, lo- I was looking at it oh, today. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, well, it's, it's huge, right? So, yeah. so 2017, Venezuela has about 30 million people, uh, and today it's got about 27 million. They have pushed out a tenth of their own population, mostly sending them through the Darien Gap up to, up to the United States, uh, uh, you know, just because why not? why wouldn't you do that why wouldn't you weaponize the misery of your own population and send them on the road it is a it is a it is a level of population drop that is typically associated with devastation and war like we have to be really clear as to it's just the magnitude of it to go from 33 30 million to 27 is is typically catastrophic you, use, you 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 typically have to have like the 20th air force bomb you for 3 years to yeah. get to get a drop like that and in this case all it's taken is nicolas maduro and his desire to hold on to power. So the Biden yeah. administration is is giving them a pass.
1: And there's there's so much that we can say of how Venezuela have, has been ravaged, and so much we can say about the horrors of people that have lived there, but that's why there's 7.7 million Venezuelans that have fled Venezuela as migrants or refugees. They have been, for a long time, one of the fastest growing immigrant groups here in the US, but they nearly tripled in size from 2010 to 2021. Yeah. Uh, but so we all knew this for a very long time, that there was a massive number of Venezuelans coming. But I read that this September, for the very first time on record, Venezuelan topped Mexicans for the largest group of nationals arrested for illegally crossing the U.S. southern border. And that was oh. shocking to me.
0: Well, what, what a what a great accomplishment, well, that, well done.
1: Yeah, and so yeah. that's why some of Biden's actions are so confusing to me, because in response to these record numbers of Venezuelans coming into the US in fair attempts to, to flee the economic and humanitarian crisis that's happening in their country. But Biden did two things, which I think contradict each other. So we talked about this in our last episode, I think that was episode 16, but he announced that he was giving half a million Venezuelans temporary protected status, which yes. is usually reserved for people that are fleeing earthquakes or civil wars or other catastrophes. Um, but he did that. And then, you know, if, if he felt bad for Venezuelans and wanted to help them, what he did next is he basically is offering to collaborate with their tyrant, Nicolás Maduro, and legitimize his, his very cruel regime. And so it's always, it's interesting because US policy has always been to isolate that regime. But now we're seeing that Biden's solution is accommodating the arrivals of so many Venezuelans that are fleeing his regime. But at the same time, he's legitimizing his regime instead of helping them free themselves. And have some more freedom in their country. So it's just been incredibly confusing to see that happen.
0: You have to understand the the, the Biden administration uh, uh, foreign policy apparatus is the same cohort of uh, well-credentialed theater kids who ran the show under Barack Obama. It really is, and uh, and and they're doing uh, just as bang up a job now as they did then. Uh, so these are the people who put, uh, you know, pallets of cash and send them to the Iranians, and they're the same individuals who believe that they can liaise with the Venezuelans and achieve this kind of modus vivendi. There's no room for American hard power in their worldview. There's no room for uh, any kind of zero-sum, uh, you know, assertion of American interest uh, in their view. Uh, they, they genuinely believe that the United States must retreat, retrench, and, and accommodate uh, those who would destroy us uh, in candor. Uh, a good friend, uh, I think this was Dan McLaughlin at National Review, but I um, could, be, could be misattributing this. So, so if this was your quote to whoever you are, I apologize to you. Uh, but, but, but he made the point, you know, we're not, we're not partisans uh, here, so I'm, I'm quoting somebody else saying this. Uh, he said, uh, uh, d- Democrats these days don't have foreign opponents. They have uh, domestic opponents of whom foreign opponents remind them. Uh, and, 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 and you see that expressing itself uh, again and again. The, 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 the only group of individuals that, uh, that, the, that the Biden regime and the people around it want to repress is, is Texans. It's, it's Americans seeking to assert their sovereignty. The, the regime in Venezuela, the regime in Iran, uh, even the regime in Gaza uh, are, are, are things to be uh, lived with and accommodated um, uh, and, 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 and frankly coddled uh, in some cases, but not us. Not us, and that ought to alarm us, gravely. Are we are we out of time? Can I, that can a little I? little bit more? Of course, yeah, no, no, please. I didn't mean to cut you off, go ahead. No, no, yeah. for,
1: I was, I had a couple more questions, but. You no, can.
0: no, by all means, yeah.
1: Okay, I know we're running out of time, but I feel like I, you know, I want to have enough time for us to answer questions, but it wouldn't really be a hard country ep- episode if we don't go to Mexico for a little bit. So, of course. I wanted to ask you about something that, I don't know whether to laugh or cry about it, um, but since we're having the US Mexico policy summit tomorrow, I thought it would be very fitting for us to talk a little bit about what I think was maybe the beginning of the end of that relationship falling apart. And that was Salvador Cienfuegos Fuegos. I think you give a very good, <laughs> like a very good brief summary of this. Could you give us like your 20 second summary for those of us who might not know who he is?
0: I don't know if I'm capable of a 20 second summary. Uh, Uh, Salvador Cienfuegos was was the head of the army basically the secretary of defense equivalent arrested in the United States in December 2020 because he was uh, provably El Padrino um, the godfather of godfathers the Mexicans freaked out we released him they kicked out the DEA in response Uh, and uh, last month is that right last month he was uh, he was on stage getting awarded some kind of order of merit for the nation from the president of mexico after they conducted this phony thing it was, it was a message it was a message uh, yeah. it was meant to spite the americans and uh, assert the immunity of corrupt senior mexican officials from uh, from from the yankee from the yankee hand so yeah yeah well,
1: thanks you summarized it very well and very briefly it took a lot I'm out of you
0: it. Yeah, yeah yeah thanks yeah.
1: well i know we don't have a lot of time but i wanted to see if there's anything politics-wise, since we're coming pretty close to the elections that you wanted to fill us in on. Uh, no, I know there... Samuel Garcia just announced that he's running. Oh, Movimiento yes. Ciudadano.
0: Yes, thank you for the reminder. Yes, uh, well, you know, it looks like, I, I think I wrongly assumed uh, that the contours of the Mexican presidential election next year were, were pretty much set in stone. But so I, yeah, I've had some conversations today with some very informed uh, friends, friends from Mexico City um who who've told me it's not the case uh that there's still there's still quite a bit of, of, of play and uh, we actually won't know for certain who's going to be on the ballot in mexico until i think march of next year so 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 even though even though like claudia scheinbaum's gone through the um the incredibly the obviously crooked morena selection process um uh, xochitl galvez who is the um uh, frente Amplio, I think, is the is, is the coalition like this yeah. like this Frankenstein's monster, Pan Three and, <laughs> and, and, and Perde have come together. Uh, apparently her um uh, she doesn't have much purchase with the party bosses and so there's a lot of rumblings that she uh, she may be dumped or, 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 or that the Frente may spin apart. And then of course Samuel Garcia uh, is very well liked. Very well liked. He's uh, yes, uh, but he's also done photo ops with, with with Claudia too, which is typically a signal. So, so so it's pretty interesting. You know, there, there's um, there, there's always the 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 suspicion that uh, and and it's never provable. At least it's never provable that I've seen it that some of these minor candidates. I don't know if Garcia is a minor candidate or not, but some of the minor candidates are um, are are put up in order to split. One side of the vote, like to split the right, you run a minor candidate. That's a left, belief run. in yeah. this case. Yeah. yeah, right. Yeah, so it's a belief yeah. with, with with several of them, and so, and so yeah, we don't know, but um, time will tell. And there's tremendous dynamism to it, and I think uh, yeah, I think we're going to have amazing elections in in both countries next year. Can I add one thing real quick? Yeah. Uh, if I could just uh, just kind of change, I have here this the, the, this wonderful hat uh, uh, on here. This uh, the, this hat is from our friends at. Uh, Patria Unida, which is a Mexican uh, policy institute uh, dedicated to liberty, that most precious of, 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 of things, that most rare of things in the Western Hemisphere these days. Uh, so I just wanted to uh, uh, give Patria Unida a shout, look them up online. Um, uh, they do uh, fantastic work, and if you're in Mexico or you're just a friend of Mexico who's interested in liberty and you know the the, the God-given rights of all people to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, which applies to Mexicans as well, um, check out Patria Anita, and uh, they have uh, fantastic swag. Actually, yeah, you know, the I'm last jealous. the last ball cap I brought on the show was the um, was the El Chapo. It's very different. The difference is I will (laughs) I will wear this one with pride. Uh, So thanks again. Thanks. And
1: Alice will be joining us in one of our panels tomorrow. So make sure to stay tuned. And Uh, uh,
0: Alice Galowen, who's the president of Padre Unida. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. And
1: we will be talking uh, a little bit more about the lawsuits from Texas and against Texas as well tomorrow. So make sure to stay tuned. Um, But we are out of time. We had a lot more to talk about, but we will have to save it for the next podcast. And I guess with that, thanks for listening to Hard Country. We're ready for, to take some questions. Let's do some
0: audience questions for the first yeah. time in a Hard Country recording. Do we have any audience questions? Does anybody have any questions? Yes, ma'am. No, please. Don't uh, you uh, please. There's a microphone coming. What's your question? Thank you. Um, we all know that the
3: jails are overcrowded. They're full. We went almost a year and a half, I believe, with no jails for women. We were letting them go. So the new bills that they're looking at right now to pass into law are to make a longer sentence or um, what are we going to do with them is the question. If we don't have jails, even though we increase the penalties,
0: mm-hmm.
3: what are we going to do with them?
0: Well, uh, you know, I, I would say as, as, as a policy principle, if you're going to, uh, if you're going to pass legislation, you should have the you should have the, the, the enabling act, whatever you want to call it, to, uh, to, to enforce the legislation. Uh, I will say this, though. So acknowledge that there's, a, there's always a capacity issue. You're, you're, you're referring specifically to HB4, I assume, which creates a misdemeanor escalating to a felony for illegally entering Texas. And then depending on the version that you look at, there's an ability to command to deport. If they don't do it, then they can be apprehended the argument that we make and so so, so we've been publicly supportive of, of that legislation i think it's a great question um uh, our argument is this uh it is it is first necessary to put the stake in the ground it's first necessary to assert the power of texas to do this thing uh and and that is such a tremendous political leap uh, as we've seen and you know we're and we're very supportive of, of the governor's efforts and you know the individuals who sponsored the bills in both chambers to get this done once that's done, uh, then it logically follows that that enforcement mechanism is, is going to have to happen. So I share, I share your concern uh, with it, not just on this, but on, on, on several other issues. Uh, but we still think that uh, it, is, it is nevertheless a plus to get it done simply because saying that Texas can do this thing is transformative in itself.
1: I'll also say it's very important for Texas and Texans to be aware of what constitutional powers we do have. I know that portion of HB4, unfortunately, I think it was amended. Um, But HB4, as it passed the House, there was the ability for Texas to order the removal of illegal immigrants from Texas. And I think that that would have been transformative as well, because you don't just have to jail them. You could actually order them to leave Texas. And it's not a lot of people were saying like, TEXAS CAN'T DO THAT TEXAS CAN'T DEPORT THAT'S UNCONSTITUTIONAL IT ACTUALLY WOULDN'T HAVE BEEN DEPORTATION BECAUSE IT WOULD BE TEXAS ORDERING SOMEONE THAT'S COMING IN ILLEGALLY BETWEEN A PORT OF ENTRY TO TAKING THEM TO A PORT OF ENTRY AND ORDERING THEM TO RETURN AND IF AT THAT MOMENT THEY DECIDE NOT TO RETURN AND then THEY DECIDE TO COME BACK THEN YOU CAN ARREST THEM BUT THAT REMOVAL ASPECT IS potentially something to look at. And we'll have to see what happens with the special session. But to assert that sovereignty that Texas has to protect its border and its citizens.
0: Any other questions, please.
4: Going off of what you just said, is there any possibility that Texas could declare a state of emergency and close the border?
0: oh great question uh I, 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 maybe you do i don't i'm not an expert in texas emergency law i'm not saying that as a dodge uh, to your question i actually don't know i'm i'm very well versed in article one section 10 invasion declarations uh so so under article one section 10 this is orthogonal to your question a little bit uh i would argue that texas does have uh the power to 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 control entry uh, into texas i don't know about a state of emergency in full candor i've just i've never looked at the law have you either that no. could be
1: a good question for rob Tomorrow we'd have to
0: follow. yes at our, at our luncheon tomorrow. Uh, I would I would hit him with that. So yes, and ma'am, you had a question up here. Could, could you uh, let's get the microphone. Sorry.
3: It's, it's on the same wavelength.
4: Um,
3: a few months ago, Governor Abbott declared it. A, we had a state of invasion mm-hmm. on the border and he put up the uh, barbed wire. He put the um, thing, the the barriers. barriers in the water. And but where did that lead us? Did, uh, where did it go? I, I i that's all i heard and then all i uh, then all of a sudden we hear the feds are coming in and cutting the bob wire and getting mm-hmm. rid of the barrier in the water i mean what's going on with the in, the invasion
0: great question uh so so, so what the governor did just uh to, just to provide some context the governor the governor declared that under article one section 10 of the constitution uh the, that there was an invasion underway the foundation's done some research on this we've got a paper out there of course those of you watching the podcast uh, if you want to cure your insomnia you can read our extensive paper on it um, but, but, but bottom line is that the governor chose to assert the invasion power in this particular way and then went ahead and, and put up the buoy barriers outside of, outside of Eagle Pass plus the razor wire that we've now seen the litigation with. Uh, I, I'm, I'm going to engage in a bit of mind reading if I could. I think it's, I think it's defensible mind reading because you know, the governor doesn't call me and confide in me late at night. But uh, he's, he's welcome to if, he was, if he's a hard country watcher. Uh, uh, you know, my, my, my suspicion, and I think this is probably correct, is, is that the governor understands, and I know, keep in mind, the governor's background is as a litigator, right? And he's very good at it. He's a very canny litigator. He understands, uh, you know, he understands that, that a lot of, a lot of what happens in governance now is, happens through the judiciary. And so, and so in order to get the full protection of Texas, you first have to assert the power to do something. And the assertion of the power doesn't just occur when the governor or the legislature or any other part of Texas government says, we can do this thing because then the federal government's going to want to come and have it adjudicated through the courts. So my guess, and again, I think this is probably right, I'll stand by this, is that the governor understands that, that, that this test case outside of Eagle Pass with both the razor wire and with the buoy barriers is the necessary litigation to make sure that the state can do that. And my hope, I think it's a rational hope, is that when Texas prevails uh, in those court cases, then you're going to see the erection of that infrastructure all across the Rio Grande. Um, but until that happens, you know, it's, it's, it's a multi-step process is, is what I'm getting at. We have to keep in mind, I think this is important to understand, is that there's, we're, we're fighting, we're fighting two, two opponents here, almost said two enemies. I'll use, I'll use enemies. We're, use, we're fighting two enemies here. Uh, one enemy is, is the synthesis of the states and the cartels in Mexico. It just is. It's a criminal, it's a criminal state that, that liaises with its own criminal elements in order to do what it does. But the other enemy that we fight is in Washington, D.C., and so and so, in order to do both those things at the same time effectively requires a great subtlety and approach. And uh, there's a strategy behind it. Uh, and I, I think that's what it is. Did did I answer your question or did I, did I muddy the waters further? It sounds like we don't have
3: any rights as a state. You know, Our our state rights have been taken away. If we can't call it an invasion and do something about our state, I mean.
0: Well. And- well, I'm, we I'm, I'm I'm glad to be uh, with you here as we both take the black bill. So, uh, yes, ma'am. Next. Uh, yeah, go ahead.
4: At lunch, uh, when the folks from Mexico, when they were talking about uh, Russia, China and all the other players mm-hmm. uh, having their uh, military parade, you know, in yes. Mexico. And I'm thinking, well, why would they do that? Well, normally, invasions, and that's what we're looking at, happen because of resources, natural resources, of which we have in Texas, oil. And those people would like, most likely, our, our oil. And also thinking, don't we have uranium?
0: We do in Goliad County, yes, we do. Yeah. Yes.
4: So I don't know, maybe you know that's just a wild thought, but historically... People invade to get your stuff.
0: Yeah, you know, I think uh, possibly I, I think it's simpler than that uh, in full candor. Um, uh, I think it's, it is simply convenient to have a base next to the United States from which to from which to uh, wreak havoc and do do, do, do malign things. But it
4: seems like that area that the leftists.
0: Sorry, would you get that? We did sorry, we just have to record for it. <laughs> Go ahead.
4: It, it seems like the area of Texas that the leftist in Mexico want to reclaim happens to be that area, isn't it?
0: Well, um, uh, you mean the Permian Basin in Goliad County? Oh,
4: yeah. Oh, they want to. They want to take take it back.
0: I don't think. I don't think that's a very interesting. That's a very interesting question. The 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 individuals who I've seen who are are truly passionately interested in a Mexican reconquest, a reconquista of the Southwest tend to be graduates of universities in California. Um, uh, I've, I've never really seen interest in it in, in Mexico uh, itself. Uh, I haven't. The last, the last plan that I know for that was the 1915 Plan de San Diego, which was a Carencista plot to uh, basically reclaim Texas south of the Nueces River, uh, south of San Antonio probably. Um, uh, but that, that, that was it. And that when they were, you know, the, the Rangers did their job and, uh, stopped it, stopped that, one cold. Um, uh, so, so I don't, I don't, I don't think that's, that that's a real policy aspiration anywhere. I think, I think there is a, an ideological desire simply to sow havoc. I really do. I think, I think it's really that simple. Um, now that being said, uh, there is an element, uh, within, within Mexico, um, within Mexican governance, particularly on the Mexican left that does regard, the, the presence of migrants as 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 a sort of spiritual reclamation, uh, if it makes sense. Uh, so so not, not operationalizing and, and and again you know most of these individuals go on to um, uh, you know like people like me right. So so you know there's there's a, there's a ethnic attrition that happens over generations. But um, uh, so 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 that's there. But I don't I don't think it's territorial. If that makes sense. Yeah. Well, if if uh, if it happens, uh, I, w- I will be I will be with you. I will be with you defending Midland uh, to the last to the last Midlander. So thank you. Anyone else? Dr. Spars?
5: You already touched on the Middle Eastern and influence in Latin America. Now, we're 40 years out from the bombing in, in uh, Lebanon. Mm-hmm. In that time, we've seen a Lebanese diaspora that's actually larger than the population of Lebanon. Mm-hmm. A large number of those are invested in Central and South America and Latin America, where they have established uh, strongholds and have integrated themselves into society, but maintain their ties to Syria and Iran. There are, for example, off the coast of Venezuela, Margarita Island is an Iranian hotspot, vacation hotspot. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes
0: yeah yeah that's true so
5: when we talk about venezuelans coming into the united states many of them have been in venezuela for 10 20 30 40 years now so they can rightfully claim that they are venezuelan and yet they maintain a tie and anchor to the middle east and the middle eastern ideology how are we Adjusting to that threat, and I realize we'll probably discuss this a lot more tomorrow. How can we adjust to that threat, and how have we adjusted to manage that threat when we rely on governments that are somewhat hostile to us mm-hmm. to provide us information about the people that are actually coming here? How do we screen that? How do we address that? What challenge? How can we meet that challenge?
0: There's a there's a strategic answer. I'm, so, I'm sorry. I feel like I've been monologuing too much to you. Go for it. Yeah. Okay. All right. Thanks. Poor um, melissa she's to it my 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 dad watches this my, hey dad uh, watches this podcast and uh told the only feedback i've gotten from him is that I need to let melissa talk more so i 'm trying to <laughs> trying to trying to follow that um uh, so there's a huge lebanese syrian uh diaspora in, in 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 mexico my my impression though is that uh is that uh, that, that has roots in in a mostly a mostly christian uh, diaspora. I actually, uh, my, my my home parish uh, here in Austin, Texas, is actually an extension of that, of that Mexican-Texan diaspora. I attend a parish with a lot of Lebanese and Syrians, so you can imagine it's a it's a fantastic, a lot of good conversations lately. Um, uh, so, so you know, I I haven't I haven't seen that be a vector uh, in candor for, for for real security threats. Um, uh, who's the most famous Lebanese Mexican, Salma Hayek? Uh, you know, she, she's made bad movies. But yeah. other than that, it's been it's been uh, it's, it's been OK. Um, I, I think I think the real issue is really is really Hezbollah. Uh, and, and again, Joseph Humeyer tomorrow will give us a much more granular look at it. Um, you, know, you know, we can't forget you talk about it being 40 years since the bombing of the Marine barracks in Beirut. Uh, it's only been, uh, what, 25 years since Hezbollah. Uh, blew up the Jewish community center in Buenos Aires, Argentina. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and so that they're they're capable, uh, willing, eager to to. I'm sorry, but they're the same in many
5: ways.
0: Uh, Hezbollah and Lebanese Hezbollah uh, it's, 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 it's an Iranian. Uh, well, no, 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 no. You're right. You're right. You're right. And I, no, I, uh, I I follow you. Uh, yes. Yes, you're right. Hezbollah being being a Lebanese Shia organization sponsored by Iran. Uh, fair. I take your point. Um, yes, they're here. You're right. To get to your question, like what's the answer? uh, There's a lot of operational answers. There's one big strategic answer. It's going to be very unpopular in Latin America. I can sum it up in two words Monroe Doctrine. Simple, simple to say, hard to do, but we don't have a choice. It existed for a reason, and letting it lapse has been a disaster, not just for us, but for the hemisphere. So, yes, sir. Any other questions?
3: Can I do one more?
0: Very well, please. This is oh, did you have a question, Jessica? I'm sorry. Okay, uh, you, yeah, you're next. No, 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 please. Go ahead.
3: Okay. I um, And you were doing very well with the numbers, Melissa. So we know that the United States gives money to all the countries, whether they're our friends or not. Um, what would happen if we gave a percent less of their people that have come here?
0: Uh, if just, I understand, they, just say we the more one. the more they weaponize migration, the less they get. from yes, us. Yes,
1: absolutely. What do you think? Well, I remember there was a time that a lot of people were talking about that as a foreign policy option. Instead of giving them less money, giving them more so that people would have more of an incentive to stay in their country. They call it the brain di- brain drain. Um, you see it a lot. Even in my home country, everyone that has the money comes to the U.S. Anyone that gets a visa comes to the U. I I mean, that's why I came here. And so I know that that's been a popular proposal to give actually more foreign aid to some third world countries so that they can have a better education right at home. I've not heard the proposal of giving them less because I would think that that would give them more of an incentive to want to flee their country, especially when we have a border as weak as it is now.
0: I think, I, I think there. No, no. I mean, I, I I concur with that. I think I think that underlying it, and tell me if I'm misunderstanding you, is is uh, is, is is a principle that's so basic that nobody in D.C. understands it, uh, but everybody else does. Which is that which is that the the expenditure of American taxpayer funds abroad ought to actually be in our interest, right? Mm-hmm. It actually ought to uh, to serve us directly, uh, and so you know with that, full hundred percent concurrence. Yes, ma'am. Jessica.
2: Thank you. Jessica de Alba from Universidad de Anahuac, Mexico. I would like not to address directly the immigration issue. Uh, I have my opinions on that. But I would like to touch upon something that you said, Melissa, about your congressional test, um, testimony. And you said you, you were a lonely, loner. Uh, yeah. How, if you have these liberal universities Across the country, but I'm just talking about Texas. In Texas, feeding the young students that they have to be, you know, open borders and uh, free for all, no debt uh, in any way for college and so on and so forth. How are you going to counter that and avoid Texas to become? a Democrat state and then open border flat. Also considering that many of the workers of those woe companies are fleeing their states because of bad government and they come here and they are going to do the same in this state. I would hate for Texas to become a Democrat and blue state.
1: Well, I wouldn't want to say that it's already happening, but it's the trend has started. Uh, I think each time you're seeing Texas start to vote a little more on the Democrat side and so I think it's it's crawling towards that. I think a big problem as far as you were talking about my testimony. I think a big problem is a lot of the time the right isn't able to organize itself well and the left is very good at it and so me being the only person testifying in support of a border security bill and sitting next to 19 people that are testifying against it and not testifying against it because it's a bad bill, but testifying against it because they think it's racist and because they think it's anti-immigrant and because they think that any measure of border security is bigoted um, can be very intimidating. And I think that that's part of why a lot of organizations like us, think tanks like us, are doing that work, but maybe people as individuals are less inclined to present themselves. There's a lot of intimidation tactics as far as that goes. But I mean, I don't I don't know what can be done about that.
0: Uh, Good news. There's a lot we can do. Uh, You know, I mean, we're we're we're, so so I should I should repeat for the record, we're a 501 501 three nonpartisan, nonpartisan institution. So uh, I, I myself would happily vote for a Democrat in 1962 uh so you know i think i think uh you know it's it's, it's worth it's 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 just worth noting that that uh that uh, you, know, you know history doesn't have any one particular direction you're entirely correct uh and, and it's obvious it's not you know everybody knows it that, that our higher education institutions kind of the commanding heights of the economy lean left the question is to what extent does it matter you know, one of the arguments that I would make is that, uh, and this this actually became clear uh, under the Perry administration, so, you know, prior to 2015 here in Texas, that the Texas media, Texas establishment media, doesn't really matter anymore. It really doesn't. Uh, when Perry ran for re-election in, uh, in 2006, his campaign made a decision to simply refuse the traditional visits with editorial boards. And, you know, all the newspapers would have... Uh, you know, you would have thought that he'd he'd destroyed American civics because he wouldn't meet with the editorial boards. He just ignored them. You know, he he, he talked to some of the rural papers, but his campaign ignored all these these big city papers, which they, they protested, uh, but then they folded uh, after that. Uh, and so and so, you know, what, what we've seen is that is that uh, is that citizens are getting their information from different sources now. So that's one thing. Like there's an ad- there's a process of adaptation happening. Uh, so while I think left wing domination, in the media doesn't matter as much in Texas, I think left-wing domination of academia actually does matter quite a bit because those continue to be the finishing institutions and the apparatuses which produce, uh, frankly, our middle class and our upper classes uh, in Texas. And that's something that we absolutely have to fix. So, so, so to your point, we don't get to where we need to be until we fix higher education, in particular, until we fix these institutions that that you know that make, in the Jeffersonian sense, that make citizens, and they're making citizens of a particular type. Now, 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 I do think I would have, I would have some optimism uh, in this. Uh, uh, you know, I would be optimistic uh, in the fact that we've been able to get some, some reform. You know, Texas has done some good work on legislating on DEI. There's more, there's more to be done. Uh, this particular moment when a lot of our universities, including higher ed places in Texas, have erupted out of sympathy with Hamas, uh, is a political moment uh, that, uh, that uh, you know, can, can, can have consequences in the long run, and I think it will. So you know, here, here's here's the thing. There's nowhere else to go. You know, if you're if you are not in the United States, you can always go to the United States. If you're in the United States, but you're in California, you can always go to Texas. Once you're in Texas, this is it. There is nowhere else you're going. And why would you want to go anywhere else, for that matter? But uh, but you know, we've got to stay here and we've got to fight. And if we don't, then we don't deserve uh, that shrine that's two hours drive south of us, in the middle of San Antonio. So.
1: I think I'll say one last thing about that, too. I think it's really important to be good to appeal, like be good at appealing to emotions. Um, I think that that's something that the Texas Public Policy Foundation does really well. Um, But, you know, combat the misinformation that's coming as far as like if you support border security, then you're racist or you're anti-immigrant. And that's absolutely not true because it's something that we say a lot on this podcast and that we try to make digestible for a lot of people that read our material or read our content is that border security also benefits immigrants that would otherwise be driven into the grasp of cartels who often abuse them and so i think a lot of it is just reframing this narrative that's so flawed and maybe that's something that we can do to better organize ourselves and appeal to the emotions
0: do we have any uh, any other questions have we have we exhausted the patience of our audience well, uh, in that case, uh, you all have been so gracious. This is, the, this is an experiment for us. It's the first time yeah, we've first done time. Uh, Hard Country Live, uh, even though uh, those, those of you on the podcast will not be watching it live, lightly edited, I would say. But uh, we're very grateful uh, to you all, not only for attending, but for also being part of the conversation uh, that we've had together. Uh, the defense of Texas and Texas history takes all of us, and it's a, it's a privilege to hold the baton uh, handed down to us under the generations. So thank you so much and that's it for the hard country.
1: That's it. Thanks guys. Thanks for listening.